there are whole communities um, and any community is significant, but there are communities that uh, race, ethnicity, access, socioeconomic status, a variety who do not have, as you well said, access to healthcare, do not have access to clinical trials, and for whom, like everyone else, this research is to be conducted to help. I mean, that is the entire purpose of research. You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join Michael Holtz and his guests for conversations about all things ORAU. They'll talk about ORAU's storied history, our impact on an ever-changing world, our innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers, and our commitment to the communities where we do business. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Happy Wednesday and welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. I am, as always, your host, Michael Holtz, in the communications and marketing department at ORAU. And I am privileged today to have Susan Ehrlich as my guest, and we are going to be talking about bias, explicit and implicit bias, um, in the context of federal human subjects research. And we will talk more about this, but Susan has written a memorandum about, um, that kind of is a brief analysis of bias. It is a, not kind of, it is a brief analysis of bias, and I will let Susan talk more about that. So Susan Ehrlich, welcome to Further Together. Thank you so very much, Michael. Tell me a little bit about who you are. I am, for this purpose, uh, a former assistant U.S. attorney and a former judge on the Arizona Court of Appeals. And actually somewhat relevant is before I became an attorney, before I went to law school, I uh, worked as an analyst for the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, employment section. And all of this really led to my career, my interest in political history, uh, what constitutes justice, of which, of course, bias is a component. What, how this all came about is that Libby White, who is the Human Subject Protection Program Manager at DOE's Office of Science, and Sherry Hotola Bateman, who's the NNSA Program Manager, they identified a need to evaluate the documents that comprise the Human Subjects Protection Program's training requirements and forms to ensure that biases are identified and addressed so that they are not barriers to participation in human subjects research. And the two of them with the enthusiastic support of Jim Morris, who's the chair of both of the central DOE IRBs, created an implicit bias task force comprised of members of the admin team and the two central IRBs. And it was this task force, which after really months of consideration discussion and very active and important discussion 
wrote a memorandum which addresses bias. In drafting the memo, my thoughts were organized into two overlapping parts. The history of human subjects research that led to the Belmont Report and the very nature of bias. And because of my career and my studies of political history, I particularly appreciated that the Belmont Report was the result of the 1949 Nuremberg Code, which itself was the result of the Nazis' crimes against humanity, mm-hmm. and also the US's shameful Tuskegee syphilis study. Right. And the Belmont reports you know, three principles, respect for persons, beneficence, and justice. Those are implied in any consideration of bias. And so in drafting, the report. And while I may have been the first drafter, I want to make sure that it's understood that every member of the task force had input, some amusing, all of it serious, and just a wonderful, wonderful collegial group. But being the first author, I was thinking specifically of this history. And if you think of US history, there first was the incomprehensibly cruel prejudice that permitted the slavery of Africans, which continues as a bias against African-Americans and the equally incomprehensible prejudice that caused such devastation to indigenous Americans, a bias that also continues. And then the prevalence of bias grew as this country grew Jews, Catholics, Irish, Germans, Italians, Poles, Hispanics, Latinos, the LGBTQ community, et cetera. And so while we like to think of the U.S. as a melting pot, in the words of Daniel Patrick Moynihan, we're not. We're a mosaic. And that became apparent as the task force identified 21 different policies without pretending that the list is exhaustive, as I proved when I just added last week to more biases. And I'm not going to name all 23, (laughs) but some are with age, um, authority, beauty, uh, gender, geography, height, language, occupation, political, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual identity, Some of these are more explicit than others, such as race, ethnicity, gender, age, and some are more are implicit. They're less intentional. And of course, what constitutes explicit or implicit bias overlaps. But although everyone has biases, those that are inappropriate can be reduced through the process of recognizing and acknowledging them, which is what was intended that the task force do in recommending, drafting this document and recommending to the admin team that it be disseminated as an educational tool. So there's the short (laughs) version of how I came to be a part of this, uh, forgetting to mention that 
I am a member of the central DOE IRB, uh, but this is how I came to participate. And this is what prompted the writing of this memo, which we do hope becomes disseminated as an educational tool for DOE. But I'll add that I also have taken it with the approval permission of the admin team and have made one version less DOE centric. It does not cite all of the DOE regulations specifically and have made it more generic so that we hope that we'll have other uses in other venues. I'm looking at the memo now and my, I guess my question for you in terms of looking at this one as an education, as an educational tool, but also is, is the goal to, in recognizing and identifying either our personal biases or the biases of folks conducting research to try and pull those biases out to, rem to remove the bias, particularly in this case in the human subjects research? The intent is that the researchers, the research community, I self-identify the biases that they have okay. with a view of understanding how the cohort of research subjects is selected. It can be something as obvious to someone like me who lives in the Southwest as making sure that the community that is most comfortable speaking Spanish be included and provided with a translator. It can be also something that as an outreach to, for example, the Navajo Nation community. If there's, if it is understood or if it's to be considered that the Navajo be included as research subjects. The Navajo Nation, and it's not alone, has its very own IRB that has to be consulted. And if the indigenous community doesn't have an IRB, there are of course governance uh, structures that ought to be consulted. Uh, and then, but those are two of the more shall we say, obvious biases. Sure. There are also what really isn't a bias, but for convenience, is it easier for the principal investigator to simply re do, conduct research among lab employees? Mm. Well, and of course, I'm ex setting aside any conflicts of interest or matters of potential duress. Sure. But we, we intended that the research researchers think globally, I don't like the word globally, take that out, think comprehensively okay. about who 
who the cohort is, who the subjects are, can and who the subjects can be, how they can be more inclusive and therefore more representative of the population for whom this research ultimately is supposed to benefit. And that is such an important issue, um, certainly for the Department of Energy, but for organizations, not only at the government level, but you know, at the university level and and other research opportunities. Um, I am I, I don't know that we you and I have ever talked about this, Susan, but I'm a cancer advocate and one of our big focuses is on health equity and particularly equity in clinical trials because, you know, as you said, it's, you know, clinical trials, you know, it might be easy to cast a net, you know, to, to the people who are, say, have access to the hospital setting, have access to a cancer treatment center. But what about the folks that it's harder to find that, you know, because of where they live or because of the color of their skin or whatever, you know, whatever of those um, 23 biases, you know, um, they don't have the same access to say a clinical trial that um, that I might because I have health insurance and because I, I know how to get to my cancer treatment center. And I think we're clearly seeing it and I trust that we've learned from COVID. Mm -hmm. And now it's seemingly monkeypox that there are whole communities um, and any community is significant, but there are communities that uh, race, ethnicity, access, socioeconomic status, a variety who do not have, as you well said, access to healthcare, do not have access to clinical trials, and for whom, like everyone else, this research is to be conducted to help. I mean, that is the entire purpose of research. So we're hoping that this is a means by which to make researchers aware of not only their biases with a view of, of it, it bringing in a diversity of people, but also a way of thinking about what kind of research should be conducted. And then also how to bring in these individuals um, so that there need not be a language barrier. Uh, we have discussed uh, how to provide transportation for certain communities mm -hmm. who simply cannot come in for research interview or for a clinical trial, especially if it's one conducted over time. Right. So there are methods to endeavor, at least attempt to eliminate some of those biases by providing access in different forms, depending on the situation. To acknowledge a bias 
it goes a significant way in being able to address it. Mm -hmm. I can think of biases which I hadn't thought of. Maybe it's a certain kind of accent. Maybe it's uh, the geographic location of someone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And these are, I find, implicit as one goes through life. How do you regard someone from New York City uh, versus someone you may uh, from Ajo, Arizona? Uh, Do you give that person more regard? I'm being careful not to name whether I would regard someone from Ajo better or worse than someone from New York City. Right. But these are the biases we accrue over time. And to go all the way back to one of my mother's favorite sayings from the musical South Pacific, you have to be taught to hate. Mm. Hate is not what this addresses although it can become, although it can be a result of bias, but it's a matter of understanding. And that's what we wanted to accomplish. And so if you can recognize the biases that you may have, hopefully you can mitigate them in the research that you're conducting. Exactly. Excellent. Um, Susan, is there anything I have not asked you about the memo or about the process that you want to make sure that we discuss? Well, you could have asked me about all seven pages of it, (laughs) but, uh, but no, except that we do hope, and this is why there are two versions, the DOE version and the DOE, the less specific version, um, so that this memo can be helpful to anyone who may find, may have a need of it. Um, so it's, and I've got to say, it's been a very, interesting, intellectually challenging and fun project, certainly for me. And I I think for the task force colleagues, um, yeah, I'm quite sure of that. Uh, And we truly hope that this can open people's eyes to the nature of bias, especially the researchers, and that this will improve the quality of research that is done by DOE. Excellent. Well, that is um, certainly something we can all um, endeavor to make sure happens. So, Susan, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time explaining um, this memo, the importance of this work. You know, as I'm, I'm a layperson, but I am highly interested in research and helping me understand, uh, you know, this, this issue is personally important to me on a number of levels. So I'm glad we could talk about it. 
Well, thank you for the opportunity. I truly appreciate it. And I'm hoping that once we expect hope that the DOE administrative team will adopt this and that it will be widely disseminated so that there can be a link for it to have a greater audience than what DOE provides. And so we're hoping that ORAU and other such terrific educational institutions will pick it up. But I'm, awesome. I very much appreciate your invitation to talk about it. Thank you so very much, Susan. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at ORAU and on Instagram at ORAU Together. If you like Further Together, the ORAU podcast, we would appreciate you giving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your reviews will help more people find the podcast.